0: The Rose Garden at the White House reacting to that very strong jobs report. Let's get into it because everybody's had a few hours to digest uh, the latest read on the U.S. labor market. And as I mentioned, adding the most workers in 10 months into the U.S. workforce. Chris Liu is Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He was Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Back with us on the phone from Virginia. Also back with us, Josh Wright, Chief Economist at iSIMS in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Hey, Chris, I do want to kick it off with you. This is a very strong report.
2: Absolutely. And I I was chuckling because that statement by the president may have been the least controversial thing he said (laughs) over the last hour. Uh, But it was a uh, surprisingly high number, Um, not only the job growth, uh, but the wage growth as well. But it is, you know, it's sort of the tale of two cities. We've got um, the jobs market telling us one thing, and we've got a very volatile stock market, which may be telling us something else. And so we always say, you know, you you don't pin too much on one month. You look at broader trends. But certainly at this point in the economic recovery, that's a great number.
1: So, Josh, come on in here. I mean, what did you read uh, from the report? Now you've had some time to digest it, maybe a little extra time, given that uh, the president took up the last hour or so, talking only a little bit about jobs, uh, as as Chris noted, and a lot about border security. Uh, what do you make of it?
3: That's right. It was an incredibly strong report. You can't make too much of any one given month, but even when you look at the broader trends, you know, we're not seeing the kind of slowdown that people have been so concerned about. All the signs, all the details, everything we thought that might be an indicator, uh, such as part-time employment or manufacturing and mining, all that looked good. And remember, these are the concurrent indicators, even when we look at more leading indicators like jobless claims or even our own hiring data at ISIMS amongst customers, you know, it's really no sign in sight of a real problem in the labor market itself so far.
0: You know, initially uh, when we were going to kick off our show before we got preempt by the president in his uh, press event um, I was like whoa I mean that's how you describe this jobs report and Goldman came out though and they said the weather probably contributed um, I guess to this report Josh do you see it that way is it, I mean there is there some anomalies within this set of data points that make that need us a- make us kind of pause a little bit and take a second look at it?
3: Sure. I don't think anyone thinks that 300,000 jobs a month is something that we're going to be seeing again this time any time this year. So, yeah, don't focus on that headline number. The question is, what's the big takeaway? And I think the takeaway was articulated very well by Fed Chairman Powell um, saying, look, the, the labor market's really strong, and that's the backbone of consumer spending, and that's the backbone of the U.S. economy. Sure, the risks have clearly shifted to the downside, but it remains to be seen how much lower we're going to go with economic growth.
1: So, Chris, uh, maybe it's because you're living a university life now, but you frame this as a tale of two cities in a lot of ways. You know, (laughs) this is the stock market doing one thing and these sort of data points doing another. How do the twain meet here? And is the market trying to figure something out or where do we go from here?
2: Well, I know you know this, but it 's important to understand that jobs numbers are backward looking whereas the stock market tends to be more forward looking uh, i 'm frankly a little skeptical that weather had much of an impact on this number. Uh, I think this is you know frankly an aberrational month um, while they did revise up November, that was a much lower month uh, and this may very well be sort of the high water mark as we look ahead to potential headwinds it 's also important to understand these numbers don 't include anything in the government shutdown. That will get reported in next month's number. And so it will be interesting to see, depending on how long that shutdown goes out, and you've got 800,000 people who are either not working or working without pay, in addition to government contract workers who won't get back pay, what that potentially does to this number going forward.
1: Well, and Chris, can we talk about that for a second? This is a a little bit of a divergence because, you know, you worked in the government. Help us understand what this feels like on the ground. It was candidly something that didn't come up in my mind, at least enough. It felt like several reporters tried to ask this question uh, of the president. This is very serious for 800 some odd thousand people who aren't getting paid right now and, you know, need to pay their bills and are are in a little bit of flux to, to say the least.
2: Yeah, you know, people think, look, government workers are well paid, you know, missing a paycheck or two won't be a big problem. I think people forget the number of Americans in general that live paycheck to paycheck. Mm. And so there's going to be a cash flow problem, even if you get paid a couple weeks later. Uh, But let's not forget, there are these, you know, government contract workers. These are the uh, security guards, the janitors, the uh, restaurant workers who work in these government agencies, they're not going to get back pay at all. And these people are low-wage workers uh, who are now sitting at home with nothing to do. And so think about you know potentially a million people who um, either aren't getting paid or potentially pulling back their spending again in the in the in the overall scope of a big job market. it may not have a huge impact um but I think when people go back and look at the twenty thirteen government shutdown, it did probably shave off a couple of points off of that quarter's g d p
1: and is that the best sort of corollary at this point you think?
2: Uh, that one went on 21 days. I think. What are we on now? Day 13, 14. 14. 14 uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the president said this could go on for years. Uh, so I think we'll have to wait and see what what the overall duration of this is. And
0: this is what kind of blows my mind. Josh, come on back in here because I think if you were you know back a few years ago when we had a shutdown and then we got to corporate downgrades and we were worried about debt, you know, I mean, not a corporate downgrades, a sovereign downgrade for the United States. I mean, that was shocking to the financial markets and here, forgive me, and I feel for those workers who are not getting paid, but it's kind of like ho-hum. And it seems like the markets and and investors and really uh, the overall environment seems to be shrugging it off.
3: Well, that's the direct impact, but we have to remember there's also the secondary impact. What's the feedback loop? At a certain point, you hit a critical mass of negative headlines and the feeling that the government just can't get things done. If they can't manage to keep their own basic operations – you know, continuing to go forward, then how are they going to conclude a trade deal on sensitive subjects with China, which we know is one of the key things that is affecting um, you know, concerns about the global outlook?
1: Well, question for both of you, and I'll start with you, Chris, uh, the Fed. How does the Fed look at this report? How does it look at it in the context of other uh, data that they're getting? You know, It, it did feel like we heard uh, Chair Powell today uh, be a little more aggressive in, in saying that he's taking everything uh, into account, nothing's uh, set in stone. How does this play into the Federal Reserve's thinking in your estimation?
2: I would expect that they will continue a steady progression of rate hikes. Mm. I don't think they should, and I think they don't. I, I think the number of people that are still on the sidelines right now—you know—if you look at labor force participation or the number of people who are working part-time—I uh, think there is still room to go in this economy. And I think, particularly when it comes to wages, where we have grown at three—I think we're at 3.1 percent—that's good, but we need more sustained wage growth, uh, and that's going to be challenging as the Fed uh, acts. Precipitously on, uh, wage, uh, rate hikes.
0: Josh, how difficult is it for the Fed in this environment, right? You know, this is a strong jobs report, yet they've gotten a lot of pushback, certainly in volatility of the markets and from the president uh, to say, you know, maybe we need to slow the pace of rate increases. How do you see it? How tricky is it for the Fed right now?
3: It's all about messaging. You know, in actual substance, what they said today was not that different from what they said in December. It was more about giving the love, you know, and I'm a great admirer of uh, venture Powell. I'm here for you. Yeah, I'm here for you. I'm paying attention. You know, he didn't make any promises, but he, he went, through the details of yeah. these are the markets we're going to look at. These are the things that we're sensitive it's to. It's not
0: quite Mario Draghi at the ECB saying, okay, hey, we're going to do whatever we have to do. It's
3: not whatever it takes. But it it's is something. like
0: I'm listening.
3: Something is a whole lot better than nothing. And he
0: mentioned the financial markets by name. Exactly. So that's interesting. Hey, Chris Liu, I think if you were back in the White House advising a president, I'm not going to say it has to be this president, but in this economic and labor environment, what would be the smart policies to be coming out of government at this point in terms of the labor market?
2: (laughs) Well, I've said this in months past, and I'll say it again. Uh, We haven't done enough for wage growth in this country right now, and one simple solution is raising the minimum wage. We are now uh, nine and a half years since the federal wage was a last raise. And if we can't do it, given where the economy is, it's hard to imagine doing that if we ever have a downturn.
0: That's a good point.
1: Josh, give you the final word here. What do you need to see in terms of more data? You alluded to this earlier, more
3: things out there as we get deeper uh, into 19. What are you looking at? It's all about the hard data, and if the government shutdown ends, then we'll get to see more of that hard data coming out of the Census Bureau to see uh, what's going on with actual uh, business spending.
0: If this government shutdown does drag on, uh, Josh, could it impact what the Fed does at January 30th?
3: Absolutely. They'll have more excuses to to hold their hand and say, we need more information, and until the government provides it to us, we don't know where we're flying towards.
1: Josh Wright, Chief Economist for iSims here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Glad you showed us the love by sticking around uh, for that. And Chris Liu, Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center and former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Thank you as well.
0: Good times, bad times. We have certainly seen that over the last couple of years. And just as of late, a lot of increased volatility in the economic and market environments. And can I just say, you've got to, Jason and I, I know Jason would concur. you got to check out the cover of Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week. <laughs> check. It's a picture of President Trump with a very long red tie that he's stepping on. And the cover speaks to uh, how the Trump bump in the equity markets became the Trump slump. Even with today's rally, keep in mind the S&P 500 is still down around 13% from its late September high. So let's get into the magazine's cover story. Peter Coy, Bloomberg's Business Week, Bloomberg Business Week's economics editor, uh, joining us uh, on the phone. Peter, great cover story. Tell us a little bit about the Trump bump becoming the Trump slump.
4: It's kind of a funny day to be talking yes. about a Trump slump, right? I know. But, but uh, I'm down in Atlanta, actually. I'm at the oh. economics convention where Jay Powell spoke today. So I got a first hand impression uh, from the second row of his talk, and it, as you were just saying i listened to it uh you you had like what amounted to the perfect environment for stocks you you had a strong economy which of course is good for corporate profits and then instead of the fed leaning against that as it typically would to try to keep an inflation under control it you had uh powell speaking really pretty dovishly yeah and uh, there were a lot of a lot of different pieces of what he said and you know there are a lot of obviously everything he says is is going to be weighed against data you know, dependence and so on, but still, there's a tone to the remarks, and the tone was everybody read it as a dovish tone. So that would imply that he's not going to rush to raise rates. And so uh, it's no wonder the market uh, responded nicely
1: today. Well, and so take us inside a little bit there, Peter, because, as you say, that that was the general response. What are people talking about on the sidelines there? Because this is kind of baller central for economists uh, this time of year. You know, we had Michael McKee, our own Michael McKee, uh, talking to Lorraine Mester earlier. Uh, What else are you hearing as you work the rooms down there?
5: Well,
4: I think that the very fact that you had the current and the past two Fed chairs sitting down together uh, was doesn't usually happen at these yeah. meetings. And uh, even had Ben Bernanke harking back to Alan Greenspan and Paul Volcker. So you're talking about a, an unbroken chain of the past five Fed chairs going back to around 1980. Mm. Um, sort of the tone, uh, although, of course, Oker and Greenspan weren't there to speak for themselves, was that, hey, we're all in this together. We're uh, uh, united in standing up for, say, Fed independence. I think that was part of the theme here. Well,
1: because you had Jay Powell saying, I believe, keep me honest here, Peter, that even if he was asked to resign by the president, he wouldn't. Yeah,
4: he had a very uh, simple, short answer to that, which was no, when he was asked if he would resign. Um, You know, no question about it. Uh, so he'd have to be fired, and then there's a question of whether that's legal. Right. I'm still a little bit of a result. So, uh, yeah, I th- there was a lot of buzz about that. It was so far the biggest moment of the meeting. Um, but at the same time, it, Powell is... That doesn't mean that Powell is going to somehow try to prove himself by being an ultra-hawk mm. and uh, defying the president. It, as, I, as I just finished saying, if anything he said he's listening to the stock market, which is something that did not come through very clearly in his remarks after the last Fed meeting in December, where the Fed raised a quarter point and talked about a couple more raises in 2019.
0: Well, I love that you said that, because I do also wonder, going back to your story in the magazine this week, is how much, you know, you talk about in your story how much Trump has affected the equity markets, specifically. And I do wonder how much the recent volatility is now impacting the president in terms of maybe changing his tone because he was certain very quick uh, since he's come into the White House to take credit for gains in the stock market. But I do wonder if that recent round of volatility and recent round of significant selling in terms of stocks has also somehow caught the attention of the president and maybe had an impact on him. Well,
5: there's no
4: question it's caught his attention. The real question is how it will affect his behavior. So you can imagine two quite distinct uh, reactions. One is that he would feel chastened by this and say, hmm, the markets are trying to tell me something about my management style. Uh, perhaps some of the more extreme measures I've taken are actually not um, so such great ideas after all. That's the message in the market. Or he could conclude the opposite and say, you know, I know I'm right about this, and uh, market's down. I've got to, like, go to even more extreme measures to make America great again, and, uh, and I'll do whatever has to be done. Uh, and that would be listening to some of his more hawkish advisors. So I'm not really sure which it is at this point.
1: So – Put this slump for us into some perspective, Peter. We've got uh, about 30 seconds left, and Carol gave the numbers at the top, you know, still down double digits from those September peaks. What does it look like as we get into 19? Are all eyes on earnings?
4: Yeah, that's obviously the uh, what moves stock prices. The, the, but then the question is, I, I'm kind of working an article for this coming week about how, uh, Slowdowns can creep up on us quite suddenly, Mm -hmm. and so that's what the market's responding to, not current earnings. Current earnings are quite good, and in fact, the outlook for the next year is still pretty good, but the market's maybe looking farther ahead to say, oh, well, good now, but things could turn on a dime, and I think that's what's behind the recent uh, slowdown in Stock market.
0: I think that's a really significant point. Things can change pretty dramatically uh, in terms of the market environment, the economic environment. Look at Apple. Even though that there were some warning signs, I feel like the tone really kind of switched very quickly this week on that name. Peter Coy, thank you, thank you. Economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek on the phone, excuse me, from Atlanta. And check out his story in the current edition, the cover story, opening remarks in the magazine. This is Bloomberg. So we're going to talk a little bit about the residential real estate market and our next guest says slow and steadier to describe this year's uh, market uh, here in 2019. Well known to the real estate market. Dottie Herman is in the house. She's CEO at Douglas Elliman in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, New York. Happy New Year. Great to have you here. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. We've had a fun chat talking about Florida, New York and all the different um, markets that are out there. So in a nutshell, how do you describe the market for 29.
6: And I'm gonna talk nationally uh, first and then. Um, Pretty slow but steady. Uh, People are not rushing into things, they're taking their time. Um, Obviously at the lowest end of every market there's always too too little inventory, so that's probably the toughest part. Uh, But affordability is really the big issue. It's not only interest rates, it's job growth. And wage growth. And so, of course, we had a great report today. Really strong, yeah. Uh, and so that's going to help. But I I tell uh, all you of You sound us, hesitant about the market environment a little bit. Are you? Well, no, I'm not hesitant. You see, I'm a believer that when the market is going crazy at its peak, it's not... If you don't... That's not really the best time to buy unless you're buying then and you want to... It's a good time to buy now, and, and it's not that it's a bad market. It's just slower people. There's not you don't see the bidding wars like you mm-hmm. saw a couple of years back. Right. Um, the high end; those people are in already. They bought two or three years ago, <laughs> yeah. and the market has appreciated since then. So now they're in, and so you can make some good deals. And it's a buyer's market. I would. Say it's a buyer's market across the country, and I think it will remain that way in 2019, uh, other than for first time buyers. However, the biggest group of buyers now obviously are- not the baby boomers anymore. It's, it's the, the millennials. millennials. So Which,
1: tell us about that. So what? what's different about them? Because I feel like we spend a lot of time, everybody spends a lot of time trying to figure out uh, this new generation. Are they new and different or are they just new the way every generation uh, is new? What are their habits? What are their eccentricities, their idiosyncrasies, as it were?
6: They're new and different. <laughs> okay. They are. Yeah. And, and, and they're new and different. First of all, they obviously have a lot more knowledge in, the, in their, their, their hands because they're, they get on the Internet and they can search and see what's on the market and they look at prices and they, they, they're pretty informed. Uh, they look for different things. I think, they—they they, first of all, they, look, they like things done. It's not like where well, somebody comes in and says, you know what? This house needs work, but you know what? We'll take our time. We'll do the kitchen maybe next year, and after that, we'll do the back. They want it done, so I always tell people who are selling their home: just look at it as the millennials buying it and make it clean and pretty. Move in.
0: They don't want to do all that work over the years. Um, they that also- is such the case. I have a millennial niece and just bought a home, um, and that's exactly wanted th- everything done. Walking in, they do. And but they're buying, because I think, you know, Dottie, we have this conversation here in the newsroom a lot. Millennials are different, you know, in terms of how they are in the workplace and how they do things. But they are ultimately going to buy homes. They
6: are 45% of the buyers now, nationally now. I'm talking national numbers. And uh, the, 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 the majority of the baby boomers are about 29, and that's peak household formation years. So those baby boomers, and again, the ba- not the baby boomers, the millennials, they started later than the baby boomers because they got out of school during a recession. Mm-hmm. They had student debt, so they put off getting married, they put off moving out of their home. And so now they're buying, and the ones that are younger, who are like 28, 29, um, they're trying to get into the entry level market, and again, affordability is a problem. The ones that are more like, I think, 35-ish, that age, now they're having kids. And um, they are definitely a generation who wants to buy homes. Mm. Um, and I remember reading during our recession, uh, that's hard to forget, that it was the end of real estate and the kids weren't going to buy it because they saw what happened with their parents. Right. I mean, I remember all those stories, right. and that That's is totally right. not, it's the opposite.
0: I was thinking about this story, I'm trying to think, help me, in the magazine, but it just talked about how people, we keep saying about everybody wants to live in the cities, but this story in the magazine, I think it was talking about Elon Musk building the Hyperloop and this whole idea of connecting big cities, but this story was saying, you know what, Elon, you might want to think about some of the suburbs, because actually people are moving to the suburbs. Well, let me or, t- And are they? No, the you're so thing? correct. You're on the money. Here's what happened. Obviously, the
6: oldest baby, uh, millennials are about 34. So when people were, when they were 25 or 28, 29, when they moved, they did want to move to the cities. But now when you have kids, you go live in a 1,000-square-foot apartment <laughs> and pay 800000 or a $1 million for it and have two kids running around. So now the benefit is the suburbs, the surrounding suburbs are going to get the benefit to that. And that's the older, the older millennials. You know, right. uh, they want to still be close to the city. And I tell the suburbs, get with it, because they don't want a place that closes up at seven, eight, seven at night. They want a place where they can go out and things of that nature. Uh, but they they are they are moving to the suburbs if mm-hmm. they have kids and they you know the city's a tough place and it's a lot of money
1: <laughs> right uh, great context as always Dottie Herman CEO of Douglas Elliman here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio helping us wrap up pretty busy first week of the year I shall say Carol Masser
6: I'm driving
5: my car I'll turn how about yeah,
1: you let me drive
5: oh no 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 who's
1: gonna drive you home
5: honey please I'll do the driving drive home excuse me I want to drive
3: just drive, baby.
1: It's the question that
3: drives us.
2: This is the drive to the close. That
1: punk music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for that drive to the close at the end of... Shall we say a volatile week, volatile couple weeks on Wall Street? Scott Kuby back with us. He is chief investment officer at the Carson Group, overseeing about seven and a half billion dollars out there in Omaha, Nebraska, somewhere in Middle America, as the counting grows. Said, yes. uh, Scott Kuby, welcome. How are you?
5: Great, and thanks, and glad to be back.
1: Well, uh, how glad are you about the market rally today? Because I think everyone breathed a bit of a sigh of relief. Uh, That jobs number, is that really what's driving us here? What did people see that made them enthusiastic and pretty wildly enthusiastic?
5: Well, I think two things. One is that we had a market that was concerned that the Fed was going to tighten too much and that the economy was slowing down. What you get is a present on both ends. The jobs number comes out. It's fantastic. Revisions are strong. And so the economy, at least this month, is looking stronger than a lot of people expected. And then the Fed chair comes in and signals that he's going to be more flexible than the language he used after the, at the last press conference. That combination says the two things that I was most concerned about on the economy and the Fed both look more positive, And that, I think, was really what sparked the rally today.
0: Do you think we have bottomed when it comes to the equity markets? The S&P 500 is now up about 7.6 percent from Christmas Eve. And mind you, it's been a volatile run since then over these last few days of the first new year or of the new year, I should say. So do you think, though, we've kind of hit a bottom when it comes to the equity trade?
5: You know, certainly near term, but I think that there still is some pretty strong looming risks out there from trade and maybe a few issues on the government shutdown, but mostly I think the trade environment. There are some positive expectations that have crept into the market. If those don't get met or if the economy starts to move down and looks worse, I think we could certainly go lower.
1: And, Scott, talk to us about earnings. We're days away from hearing a lot of fourth quarter and maybe year-end results from a lot of companies. Where, How are you modeling, I should say, uh, what we expect to see at this point given what we have so far?
5: You know, low double digits uh, is the expected growth, which is really good because the historical rate is, you know, say around 6 or 7%. So we're going to get another good earnings quarter with some boost from tax. But generally speaking, earnings looks pretty strong. I think the big weak spots that we're looking at are is what we saw with Apple and we've seen with some other companies is multinationals that are doing business in China. I think those earnings have come back, but those earnings expectations get tend to get anchored. And so I think there's still some risks of some additional negative surprise. Uh, I think, though, we'll have some places where things are a lot stronger than expected. And I think we'll probably come in around that 12% growth.
0: In terms of, the the economic outlook, Larry Kudlow uh, President Trump's top economic advisor was on Bloomberg television earlier today <clears throat> excuse me following the jobs report and he says he doesn't see any recession in sight and he says you know folks we keep talking about uh, the tax reform and how that you know we've kind of already the sugar Bowl or the you know we've already felt the impact of it uh, kind of a sugar high he says no it's gonna last for a little while longer uh, and maybe even longer if, if things get renewed so I, I'm just curious is there – is there something? Is he right that we shouldn't be so quick to be so dismissive um, about the change in tax policy and, and so on?
5: I, I think he is, um, and I'll say that uh, I, I, about a, a quarter ago, I did a slide called Keynes Plays Fortnite, uh, which references both the popular game, but well also John done. Wow, Jason Calley, There's Kelly really, there's is really something for here. everyone there. Yeah. huh? I, I, I'm hitting everybody on that, but the point of it is, is that. In 2019, we will see all the economic philosophies collide in a real-time game where we'll see whether the stimulus cut being reduced, as the Keynesians would expect, would reduce growth, or do our more free market tendencies in the overall assesses of deregulation and lower taxes allow growth to continue. And obviously, Larry Kudlow is... Firmly in that latter camp, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of incentive to be. And so I don't know what the answer is, but I think that's one of the big, sort of big-picture questions that will make at least economics professors extremely excited for 2019. And
0: his exact words were, it's not a sugar high in Trump policies that they'll stick They'll stick around. Right. So we'll see. So, yeah. so, yeah, so and Scott,
5: I think, you know, in any great growth above 2 and... Two 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 three. I think is a win overall for the for the for the Trump administration and the policies they put in place.
1: Scott, only about thirty seconds left, but are we seeing a decoupling of the fangs here? Because Netflix has been a huge uh, outperformer. Apple, obviously, uh, very much in the headlines for not great reasons uh, this week. What do you make of that tech trade going forward?
5: You know, I, I have. One thing about this decline that we've seen is that the the overall market performance has widened out, and I think you're going to see the fangs fall and underperform is my expectation. I think they're going to perform because of higher competition, but it's going to be news-related. So Netflix is going to need to have a bad subscriber month in order to push it down. It's not going to react to Apple's news out of China. I think you'll be very stock-specific as it occurs.
0: Scott Kuby, thank you so much. Chief Investment Officer at Carson Group, $7.5 billion in assets under management. Uh, Joining us on the phone from Omaha, Nebraska. And we didn't get to ask him uh, because he likes macaroni and cheese, apparently.
1: He does, yeah. (laughs) I I learned something about him uh, from our notes. And he's a Hogan's Heroes fan uh, as well. Loves
0: Christmas also. Who doesn't? I know.
1: I know you do. This (laughs) is Business Week.